Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Screw the Stigma. My name is Afra and thank you so much for tuning in this week. First of all, I would love to thank all the listeners who are listening and tuning in every week. Your support really means the world to me and I don't think I can express that in words. But it really motivates me and it pushes me to keep improving quality and putting out better content and pushing myself to do the best that I can. And it really blows my mind seeing that. I was really scared to start this, honestly, if I'm being really honest. I didn't know, you know, what I was doing. I I just had this message and I had this urging me to do something and to make a difference and it really blows my mind seeing that people resonate with my mission and your support it really means a lot to me and it's not easy honestly um, having a full-time job and balancing both things and editing and video editing and all of that really takes a long time but at the end of the day everything is worth it because of your support so You know, thank you so much for tuning in every week and make sure to tune in every Monday. New episode will be out and um, and you can get updates on my podcast. If you follow me on my Instagram page at Screw the Stigma Podcast, I will update you when the episode goes up as well as I create content for tips to live a better life as well as other social issues. So check that out and you can enjoy this episode online on visual form on YouTube at Screw the Stigma Podcast. Check out my channel. Everything is in the description below or if you're watching this on Instagram, then it's in the bio. So thank you so much once again and I really appreciate each and every one of you. And on that note, I want to move on to this week's podcast. Um, This week's uh, episode really motivated me actually to do more and to make a difference because it's with Terry Tucker and he is battling cancer, but he is doing so much with his life and he's motivating a lot of young people as well as making a difference and I think that's what we need in today's age where we often find ourselves making excuses on the things that we want to do but we are too scared to do it and that is human nature at the end of the day we try to protect ourselves from danger but you know there's so many things that we can do and I hope this episode inspires you to do the things starting today as well as motivates you and makes you feel better and gives you a good start to your week and on that note i'm gonna cut to the episode now hello everyone i have terry tucker with me today hello terry how are you doing i'm good afra how are you doing i'm doing great i want to know how your 2021 has been so far my 2021 has been great i have uh Got to spend a lot of time with my family, my wife and my daughter. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, for me, that's that's about as good as it gets. So it's been great. How about yourself? It's been going pretty well as well. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I think this will be a great talk for everybody. Well, thank you for having me. It, it's folks like you that that give people like me an opportunity to, to to get our word out and hopefully help some people. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. I I just, you know, I'm I'm glad that you decided to join me today and share your story and you have an incredible story. And before we get to your story, I want to know for the listeners out there, can you please tell me like a little bit about your background, where you're from, where you're doing? 
Sure. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. I am the oldest of three boys. You, you can't tell it from obviously talking, but I am six foot eight inches tall and I played basketball in college. I have a brother who's six foot seven and another brother who was is six foot six and then my dad was six foot five. So if you sat behind our family in church, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was going on when, when we were growing up. Um, athletics, specifically basketball, was an important part of my life growing up. And I attended college at the Citadel, which is a military college in Charleston, South Carolina in the U.S. on a basketball scholarship. After college, I moved home to find a job. I'm kind of old, so this was long before the internet was available to help people find jobs. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college, and I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job, but unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my grandmother and my father, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 27 years, and our only child, a daughter, is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is a lieutenant in the newly formed Space Force here in the United States. Um, and from a professional point of view, I've had a number of jobs. As I said, I was in the marketing department at Wendy's. I was a hospital administrator. I was a police officer. I was a, a SWAT hostage negotiator. I've had my own security consulting business. I was a basketball coach. I've been a motivational speaker and an author. That's incredible. I mean, looking at your resume is insane. I have no idea how you were able to switch to so many career fields and, you know, something and the jobs that you had were so unrelated to each other that it just blows my mind because, you know, I know for a fact that a lot of us nowadays and I know for a fact, even till now, a lot of people are told and the kids growing up in school, especially we're all told to pick a certain major, pick a certain field and sort of stick to it. Like we have to make a choice when we're just 18 to know what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. And I think that whole concept is incredibly insane because knowing what you want to do when you're 18 for the rest of your life, that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> I feel like we're all going to change our minds. But what you did was completely so different to each other. And I want to know, how was that experience switching from one thing to another? And what kind of, <laughs> did you receive any backlash from your friends or family? Or were they supportive? Or people confused why you were switching so much? Well, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of asking an 18-year-old young person to say, what are you going to do with the rest of your life is nuts. And, and I was just like you. I, I, had, I had an idea what I wanted to do, but I, I really wasn't sure. And I majored in business in college because my dad told me to. I, I really had no idea. And if, and if I had to do it over again, I would probably major in something else, uh, law or something like that. Um, I always kind of knew I wanted to be a police officer. It, it was sort of something. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. I don't really remember him. He, he died when I was six or seven years old. And I always wanted to do that, though. But my dad was totally opposed to it. He, he didn't want to have anything to do with me being in law enforcement because my grandfather was shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It wasn't a serious injury, he was shot in the, in the ankle, 
But my dad always remembered that knock on the door and, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please bring your son. Your husband's been shot. So he didn't want to have anything to do with that. He was like, you're going to go to college. You're going to get a job in business. And, and so I did because I loved my dad and he was kind of my hero. But I still had this burning desire in my heart to follow my dream, to follow my passion, uh, to follow my purpose, for lack of a better word. And so I waited till I did what every good son did. I waited till my dad died until I really started to to follow my passion. And did I get backlash? You know, it's funny. My wife and I were married when I was a suit and tie, eight to five, Monday through Friday, hospital administrator. And I went to her one day at dinner and I was like, I think I'd like to be a policeman. And that's entirely different. That's working nights and weekends and missing holidays and birthdays. And she was very supportive of it. Um, my mom wasn't crazy about it, I'll tell you that. Um, but my friends and my, my wife at the time, our daughter wasn't born, were very, very supportive. And I got out of law enforcement and I moved into having my own security consulting business and doing basketball because my wife lost her job and she is the primary breadwinner and found a job in another state. So we had to, to move. So she supported me in my law enforcement career. I supported her in moving on to a, another job in another state with another company. So there was, you know, there's give and take in any good relationship, you got to support each other. And so for the most part, that's, that's kind of how everything worked out. And, and I've never been someone to let grass grow under my feet. You know, I, I, if I want to do something, I, I always tell people, if you want to do something, if you feel it in your heart, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because I promise you at the end of your life, you'll regret the things you didn't do, not the things that you did. I, I completely agree with that. I think nowadays there's so many things that people want to make sure is in good conditions, you know, whether it's their financial situation or if, you know, they, I feel like a lot of people tend to overthink things and I don't blame them. It's because, you know, certain things we cannot predict after a certain while. And you joined the law enforcement quite late in your life. And I want to know how was that feeling joining the law? Because when you join, if I'm not wrong, when you join the law enforcement, you have to go through certain stages. You have to start from the very beginning, no matter how old you are, no matter where you're starting from, you need to start from the very beginning. How was that starting in the late 30s? Right. You're not wrong. You're absolutely correct. Um, and I was 37 years old when I was a rookie police officer. On the one hand, it was a little more difficult, but but I'd always been an athlete. Uh, part of learning to be a policeman, there are kind of two parts. One is the classroom where you learn laws and things like that. And the other part is the physical fitness, uh, defensive tactics to learn how to keep yourself safe and your partner safe. So that was a little bit more challenging. I had a little more aches and pains, took a little more Tylenol and things like that, you know, after after class. But on the other hand, when I actually got out on the street and had to deal with people, I had some life experience. So I was able to bring that life experience. I was able to talk with people. I think that's the one of big one of the big criticisms today, uh, especially here in the United States with law enforcement, because I still have friends that are that are involved in in the police department. That that young people can't talk to people because they they're too busy texting and 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 doing all the social media stuff that you can't sit down with an individual and have a conversation. 
And I've been approached by a couple young people who are interested in getting the law in, in, into law enforcement. And they've asked me, what do, you know, what do I think they need to do? And I told them, put your cell phone down. Go out on the street and talk to the homeless guy that's sitting there about his life. And then go talk to some rich person, some educated person, some middle of the road person. Talk to the janitor, you know, talk to the CEO, talk to all those people, because you're going to have to talk to those people when you get on the job. You know, I mean, crime doesn't discriminate. It, you know, the homeless guy is going to be a victim of crime. The, the person who lives in a penthouse of an apartment building is going to be the victim of a crime. You need to be able to be able to talk to both of those types of people. And if you can do that, you'll be successful at the job. That's a very good point. And I think talking to people is something that a lot of young people nowadays, they struggle with, especially talking to strangers. Because, you know, there's there's an element of we grew up with being indoors. You know, the socializing aspect was limited to us, like, to the to the bare minimum as much as possible. So going out and talking to people has always been something that's difficult for everyone. And now there's so many things like social media and a lot of distractions out there. But when you did go out in the law enforcement, now especially police officers, I think all around the world have a really bad rep about you know, how things are done. Did you receive any backlash for what you were doing from normal citizens, from... I'm pretty sure your friends were pretty supportive, but from the outside people, did you feel like there was a huge backlash that you received being in the law enforcement? I don't know if backlash is the right word. I mean, there there are certainly uh, people, you know, if my wife and I would go to a function or a party or something like that, and, you know, they knew I was a cop. And, and so, you know, I was carrying a gun and I, I had... Um, you know, you'd always get the little the little jabs about, you know, oh, be careful. You don't want to drink too much. You know, Officer Trucker will get you for a DUI or something like that. So, I mean, but that's that's just part of the game. That's just just part of something that you have to deal with. My partner and I um, ran an entirely black neighborhood for about four and a half years. And, and I'll tell you, Yes. Did did we get called names and did we get called all kinds of things that I won't repeat here on your podcast? Yeah. I mean, I've been called all kinds of things. But I'll tell you who I really felt sorry for were the black police officers because the African-American community looked at them as kind of Uncle Toms or turncoats or people that, you know, you sold out your race. And these were some of the, the finest police officers, some of the most dedicated individuals who just wanted to make an impact on their community. And I always try to put this in perspective. You know, as a police officer, we make less money than a plumber does. Nobody wants us at the scene of whatever is going on and everybody lies to us. So imagine if you went to work every single day and you made less money than a plumber, nobody wanted you around. Everybody ignored you, tried to get, get away from you, didn't want you around. And then everybody you did deal with lied to you because they're trying to put their best foot forward so that, hey, believe me, take that guy to jail or, or whatever it is. So that's if you had to live that life, if you had to have that kind of job, the only way you're going to you're going to do that is if you have a very altruistic heart and you want to help people because nobody's going to put up with that kind of stuff you know, for very long, unless you have a tremendous desire to make a difference in your community. 
And I'll tell you, I did, and everybody I worked with did, regardless of whether they were male or female, black or white, straight or gay, it didn't matter. They were just good people who were trying to make a difference. Did you ever have the fear of something bad happening when you were going to a job, you know, your job every day? Did you have that element of fear that was there? I did, you know, and, and, if, and if any police officer ever tells you they're not afraid from time to time, they're either lying to you or they're a fool because fear was given to us, you know, by mother nature or whatever you want to say. And, and it certainly helped people, especially in my job, stay alive. I, I can I can recall several runs where my partner and I maybe get dispatched to a real innocuous run, you know somebody's called because their neighbor's TV set is too loud or, or their radio is too loud or whatever it is. And we just have to go knock on the door and say, hey, turn the radio down, please. And that's the extent of what we're doing. But we would be going to the run, to the, to the, to the call, and one of us would be like, mm, I got a bad feeling about this run. You know, it's a nothing run. There, were, there are no nothing runs in what we do, but, you know, it's a nothing run. But we would respect that. We would, you know, I would be like, hey, if you feel that way, then we're going to be extra cautious in how we approach this run. We're going to be extra careful in what we do. And the same with me. You know, I mean, we may have been chasing somebody and it's like, you know what, I, I just got a bad feeling about this. So we're going to stop. It's not worth me getting hurt, my partner getting hurt, somebody else getting hurt or killed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're, I've been afraid. I've I've been shot at, I, I you know, and, and, and things like that. I was in the drug unit and, I, and I, I bought, I was undercover buying drugs and things like that. So yeah, fear is something that's part of the job, but it's also, if you recognize it, it's something that can help you and keep you safe. And you mentioned that, you know, you're getting paid less than a plumber and there's, there's lack of safety. So if anyone who's in the law enforcement, they're doing this because, you know, and you did this because you have a pure passion for being a police officer which is incredible, but you left about after 10 years and you left, you know, what pushed you to leaving that point? Because if you had so much passion into this job. I'll tell you, that was one of the hardest things that I did in my life, but I did it because uh, I think I mentioned this a few minutes ago, my wife is the primary breadwinner. She, she brings home most of the money and she lost her job in Ohio, in Cincinnati, where we lived and where I was a policeman. And so she tried to find another job in Cincinnati, but was unable to do that. And so she did find a job somewhere else in another state in Texas, and, and we had to move. So, you know, yes, I had a passion for being a police officer, but, I, but that wasn't my identity. You know, it wasn't like that was the only thing I can do. And my family was certainly much more important to me than my job. And so we, we, I, we left Cincinnati. I got out of law enforcement uh, strictly because my, my wife found another job. And, and, that, and that was the only reason. And believe me, I loved doing what I was doing. I worked with great people. It was very, very hard for me. But my family was number one. And so it, 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 it was a hard decision. It was a hard thing to do but it was the right thing to do for our family. I feel like you were always on your feet doing things. You switched from different careers. You were always on the move. You were in the law enforcement and you were doing so many things at once and you even went to law school. I did, correct. 
And those are all incredible things. And you were, I felt like you, you always did something. You're always motivated. You're always going from one thing to another. But then when you were diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, I want to know what made, how that made you feel like when you know that this was going to be something that's going to be at least slowing you down, but not stopping you, but slowing you down. How did that make you feel? Um, it ran the gambit of, of emotions. Um, you know, you, you mentioned I was on my feet and, and I had this very rare form of melanoma, which is, a from, from most people's perspective, a skin type of disease, a mole or, or, or a dark spot on your skin that uh, turns cancerous. My cancer, my melanoma presented on the bottom of my foot, which was an area that you know, you're, you're, you're not tanning that area. You're, you know, you're, it, there's no way that, you know, you, you would get ex sun exposure down there, you know, unless you were walking barefoot constantly. And even then, I'm, I'm not sure you, you, would, you would do that. So for me to get this, I had this callus break open when I was a basketball coach. So I was on my feet a lot and I really didn't give it a lot of thought when it happened. But then I went and uh, when it didn't heal, I went and saw a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine, and he put some pads in there and stuff like that. When that didn't work, he cut out a little little cyst in there and he said, you know what, seen thousands of these, no big deal, but I'll send it off. Two weeks later, I get a call from him. And like I said, he was a friend of mine and he was having a difficult time talking. And the more difficulty he had in trying to tell me what was going on, the more frightened I got. And eventually he came out with it and he said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years and I've never seen this form of cancer. And I'll tell you, when your doctor tells you that, that scares the heck out of you. And, and it certainly did. And, you know, I ran the gambit between, you know, this couldn't possibly be happening to me. You know, I, I've taken care of myself. I had a physical exam every year. I, I ate right. I didn't abuse alcohol and drugs. I exercised. I, all the things that we're told in life to be successful or to be healthy, I had done. And now I have this form of cancer. And, and I asked my doctor one time, I'm like, why did this happen to me? Because I have been genetically tested for the 88 different genes that supposedly that they know cause cancer or they suspect cause cancer. And I don't have a mutation in any one of my genes. I mean, I'm the picture of health when it comes to that, but yet I have this form of cancer. And my doctor is like, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. We think it may be trauma related as to why that may have happened, but I can never recall ever having a trauma to the bottom of my foot where that, where that occurred. So, so I was scared, I was mad, I was anxious, I was nervous. You know, I, I went through the gambit of emotions and you know, finally got to the point where, okay, you know, I had three knee surgeries in high school, um, almost lost my basketball career because of that. Uh, law enforcement, you, you are taught that, you know, you will win, you will survive. Uh, quick sort of side story, we had our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph to class of the people that we love the most. And we would look at that photograph while we trained because his thought was you will fight harder for somebody you love than you will fight for yourself. So, you know, when I got this disease, it was like, 
you know, after I started feeling sorry for myself and I, I did every, I, you know, I'm not superhuman. I, I have emotions. I cry, get upset. I, you know, I get down, but I don't stay down and I, I don't stay in that, that, you know, being upset, being down, it, you know, is something that happens to all of us staying in that position. That's a choice. That's a choice that you make in terms of what you want to do. And my choice was no. Okay. I, here's another challenge in my life. I'm going to have to hit that challenge and I'm going to have to do it to the best of my ability. So I, that's kind of a long winded answer to your question. But, that, you know, I went through all the emotions when I first found out I was I had cancer. And how did your friends and family react? So my wife was incredibly supportive. Um, she's she's pretty tough. She's she's from Norway. So she's a pretty tough woman. And our daughter was in high school when I was diagnosed and my wife and I made a decision very early on that we would never lie to our daughter. We would tell her the truth, obviously age appropriate, depending on, on what the situation was. Uh, she's an adult now, so that, you know, that's, that's not an issue, but we would never lie to her. So my family was incredibly supportive. My friends, for the most part were supportive, but there were several friends that were afraid and kind of backed away. And I, I, I always tell the story because I've, I've done it. You may have done it as well. You, you know, when, when you're dealing with a, a chronic illness or a terminal illness, when even when you, you know, you're going into the hospital, maybe to have knee surgery or to have a baby or whatever it is. And somebody always comes up to you and they're like, Hey, if you need anything, let me know. And, and I've done that. And that drives me crazy because the same things that you have to do at your house, you know, take out the garbage, cut the grass, walk the dog, go to the grocery store, all those things I have to do at my house. So don't sit here and say, you know, Hey, if you need anything, let me know. Because what that does is take you off the hook. It's like, you know what? Hey, I asked, he didn't say anything. So I'm good. No, that, that, no. Don't sit on the sidelines and try to pretend that you're playing in the game by saying something like that. And I'll give you a quick story. When I had my first surgery, I did not have to stay in the hospital after it was done. So I was home about 30 minutes and my cell phone rang and it was a good friend of mine who was at the time was 95 years old. He had been in World War II. And he said, Terry, I know you just got home from the hospital. I know you just had surgery. Can I come over for 10 minutes? I just want to drop something off with you. And his name was Bud. And I said, sure, Bud, come on over. 15 minutes later, my 95-year-old friend arrives at my house with a fully cooked chicken and a pan of cream cheese Danish. And he's like, here, you have dinner for tonight and you have breakfast for the morning. He didn't ask me what I need. He didn't ask me how he could, you know, what I could do to help him. He just went out and did something. So if you know anybody who's in my situation, or like I said, Friends that are having a baby, you know, somebody's going in the hospital for knee surgery, somebody who's, you know, has to be with their mom because she's dying, whatever it is, just do something, you know, go to the grocery store, like here, I'm going to, I'm going to go shopping for you. I'm going to cut your grass. I'm going to take your dog for a walk. I'm going to bring in your garbage cans, whatever it is, just get involved. Don't stand on the sidelines and try to pretend that you're playing in the game. I agree with you because I think it's so much easier to just say that, oh, let me know when you need anything. But I don't think anyone's in their mind. The first thing would be to ask for something. 
So it just makes them feel better that, oh, I contributed. But in, in a way, you didn't. You just said that you'll do something, but you never actually did anything out there. So I, I completely agree with you on that. And I think a lot of people get hesitant about doing things or taking the next step to doing something to, that can actually help someone. But I feel like, you know, if you really do care about that some if you really care about that person, anyone, friend, family, or anyone, whoever it is, I feel like you need to understand, put yourself in that situation and think about what you can do that could best contribute in that situation. And that's that's called going the next step to making sure that you can help someone. So I I completely agree with you. And I think that's something that people don't often think about and even when before you said it I didn't think about it in that way so I think that's a great perspective when you tell someone that you're you know you're battling cancer and you know you are sick and seeing those things people automatically become sympathetic do you feel like people sometimes just see you for your disease rather than the person that you are absolutely uh, you know it, it's the number of people that are afraid to talk to me because I have cancer, they're, they're afraid to ask questions, even when I do a podcast. I've, I've had people who have hosted podcasts that I've been on who, have, who after the podcast have said, gee, I would have liked to have asked you this question or that question. And I look at them and it's like, why didn't you? Well, I wasn't sure how you'd fit. You know, I, I said, well, I told you at the beginning that nothing was off limits, that you could ask me anything that you wanted to ask me. And by the fact that you didn't ask me that question, maybe there's somebody out there who, who had that question in their mind and wished somebody would have asked it so that I would have had an opportunity to answer it and maybe make them feel a little better. So, yeah, I think people are very nervous, especially when you have, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, you have knee surgery or you have something like that, it's fine. But when you have a chronic disease or you have a terminal illness, which more than likely I do, people are very uncomfortable about that because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think they know what to say. They're afraid they're going to offend you or upset you. There's nothing you can ask me that's going to offend me or upset me. Or, or two, they start to think that, you know, that might be me someday. Well, I got news for you. That is going to be you someday. You know, and I mean, unless you drop dead of a heart attack like that, you're probably going to get sick and that sickness is going to progress to your own death. And that's okay. We all die. You know, I always say, you know, everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. And because I am at probably the end of my life and I have lived, I mean, you, you talked about my resume. I've, I've done the things that I felt I was born to do death doesn't it doesn't have the the fear the hold on me that it has for a lot of other people so from that perspective now don't get me wrong i don't want to die and i will do everything i can to fight to, to make sure i continue to stay here but when it happens and it will for all of us why not have it be a peaceful thing and kind of almost be exciting like let's let's look to see what's going on there's a native american blackfoot proverb here in the United States that goes like this, it says, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. You know, I want to, I want to, hey, I, I may have died, 
but I want to see what's on the other side of death. I want to see, or I want to see what's on the other side of life, you know, whatever, whatever's out there. And some people believe there's nothing out there. I tend to believe there is something out there. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people, they do become, because they feel like it is, you know, not everyone has your perspective. I think that's one thing that you have, you know, I feel like you've, done a lot of great things in your life you tested out what works for you and you listened to yourself and then you've done the things that you wanted to do but i feel like a lot of people don't do that and when they're hit with something something that's terminal that that is a huge impact that people have to go through so i think that's why a lot of people they get afraid of saying anything or offending anyone who's going through that because they don't know what kind of stage they're in if they're in the deni- denial stage or if they have accepted the fact that this is this is the case and you know they they don't know what kind of situation that's in so for the people out there who who do want to talk to people like this, but they don't know what's sensitive and what's not sensitive and to not cross the line. Where do you think boundary lies? So one of the things that I did uh, as a police officer was I was a hostage negotiator. So we had, we had to talk to people. One of the things a good policeman picks up on are, are, are clues or cues that somebody's giving off when, when you and I are face to face and we can see each other. When we're negotiating with somebody, we are not, we're, that person is not in front of us. They may be a block away and we're talking to them on the phone. So we have to understand or try to understand what's going on based on what they're saying, what they're not saying, and how they're saying it. And sometimes, you know, we would start down a path and the person, you know, I don't know, you know, it's like, well, you know, you seem very upset at your mother. Now, if I was on the right track, that would just allow them to talk and, and go on. If I'm not on the right track, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? This has nothing to do with my mother. So they're going to let me know that that I'm off base, that, you know, that, that, I, that I tried to, that I, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm going to try this tack. It didn't work. So I realized that that's not where this problem lies. It lies in another direction, and I've got to figure that out. So from, I guess to answer your question, I think if you get to a, if you get to a, a conversation, into a conversation with somebody, and you start going down a path that they don't want you to go down, you, 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 you'll figure that out. You know, you, you'll realize that, you know, they're kind of looking away from you or they're, you know, moving away from you or, or some of the subtle clues that we all do when we don't want to talk about something. But I found that especially people who have accepted their situation, that there's not much that that you're going to ask that's going to upset them because they've probably already processed that part of it. You know, what, what do you think about dying? You know, where do you think you go? I mean, how do you feel about that? All that kind of stuff. If you've had this disease long enough, I, I've, I've had it for nine years. I've got a friend of mine who has pancreatic cancer, who, who has had it for months. So where I am and where he is are in two entirely different mm-hmm. places. And we talk a lot about that. He's like, how do you handle this? Or how do you handle that? Because I've had a lot more time to think about it. So, I, I mean, I would say be um, careful, maybe. I, I'm not sure that's the right word, but just be cognizant that 
what you might ask. And you might want to say, hey, look, I want to ask you a really personal question, but I'm not sure, you know, how you're going to handle that. And, and they may say, look, you know what? I can't deal with that right now. Don't, don't ask me anything like that. Or they may say, ask me anything you want and I'll do my best to answer it. I think that's, that's really good. I think that kind of draws the line of what's accepted and what's not. And going back to the fact that you have battled this for over nine years now, was it a, was it a constant thing that you had to battle or was it off and on? And if, if it was off and on, did you feel did you feel exhausted that you had to go through this battle over and over again? Yes. So when I was initially diagnosed, I had two operations, one to remove the cancer from the bottom of my foot um, and then one to remove all the lymph nodes in my groin because the, the cancer had spread to one of the lymph nodes in my groin. So I had them all removed and then a skin graft to close the wound on the bottom of my foot. And after I healed, I was put on a, a, a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And my doctor kind of described it as, we're gonna put you on this to try to kick the can down the road so that there are more treatment options the, the longer we can go with it. Interferon for me was a lousy, horrible, nasty, debilitating drug. And I took those weekly injections for four years and seven months before I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which usually isn't compatible with being alive. Imagine, I, I guess the easiest way to describe it. So imagine having the flu for two to three days every week for five years. That's what I went through. You know, I mean, I was nauseous. I was chilled. I had a headache. My body ached. All the things we know, you know, what, what it's like to have the flu. But imagine having that every week for five years. Because when my doctor suggested, I looked at her like she was nuts. I'm like, oh, what? what? You want me to have the flu every week for five years? She's like, Terry, if, if you can survive that, if, you can, if your body can handle it, yeah, that's what I'm asking you to do. I thought she was crazy. I thought I was crazy for saying, yeah, I do it. You know, I mean, so once, once that stopped, that medication stopped, once it became so toxic to my body, the disease came back and that was in 2017. In 2018, in January of 2018, I had my left foot amputated. Um, in 2019, the disease came back again and I had two surgeries. And then last year, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle grew large enough to fracture my tibia, my shin bone. And that resulted in the amputation of my left leg right in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, that was my wife dropped me off at the hospital. I was the only surgery that day. Nobody could be with me. No family, you know, no friends, no nothing. Um, that was pretty scary. That, that was pretty daunting. Um, and then further testing found that I have tumors in my lungs and I'm undergoing uh, a clinical trial of a, an experimental drug to see about the efficacy of that drug to see if it works. And, and so far for me, it is working. It shrunk the tumors in my lungs by about 20%. But I mean, we're not talking about cure. We're talking about buying me some more time. So buying time is really what I have now. You know, maybe they'll come, something will come up down the road that I will actually um, be able to be cured. But for right now, it, it's, it's not looking like that. So, you know, you, you go through that 
And it's, it's just a constant, you know, now what, now what, now what? And so you, you really have to make a conscious decision to, um, to get out of your head or, or to what, what I, I call it control your mind. I, I have three, I'm looking at them right now. I, I have a post-it note with three, what I call truths in my life. And I look at this post-it note every day I sit at my desk. And the first one is you need to control your mind or it will control you. And the second one is you need to embrace the pain and the suffering that we all experience in life and use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual. And the third one is as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So I, I, I have been able to, I think, just through all the pain and the suffering that I've been through, learn how to take pain and internalize. I mean, we know our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So when you have all this pain coming at you, most people want to run from it, to get away from it. I've learned to internalize it and, and use it as energy or burn it as fuel to make me stronger, to make me more determined. And that's a weird way of approaching things. And, and people ask me about that all the time. And all I can tell them is, it's something I've had to do to survive. It's something that I've, I've been able to do to say that, you know what, I'm going to take that pain. I'm not running from it. I'll take it. I'll take more of it. And it will just make me stronger. First of all, I just want to say that you're incredibly strong for even going through all that phases in your life. And like healthy people, they tend to take a lot of things for granted you know even when we get the smallest illness like a flu or anything you know people just often they, they you know they lay in bed they take the days off and you know it's it's because they think that you know okay we're sick and you know we deserve the rest but what you went through even having the having symptoms like having the flu for four years that's that's insane because I know that, you know, how much draining it can be and how it can drain you out of your energy and motivation to do anything. And I just want to say that your your perseverance is something that is really admirable. And, you know, the fact that now even getting diagnosed now again and, you know, fighting through that your mindset is the fact that, you know, I'm 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 OK with it and I'm going to fight through it is something that is really admirable, honestly. And I just want to go back to the fact that you said you got your leg amputated. And I can only, I just want to know how that felt like, you know, how, you know, going from being in the law enforcement where you were always on like, you know, runs and you're always moving to the fact that you had to get your leg amputated, that must have been a huge, drastic change and I, I just want to know what you went through emotionally uh, mentally and you know physically what you know how that feels like right now you know the, the same emotions I went through when I found out I had cancer I pretty much went through when it was determined that really my only option was to have the leg amputated the, the cancer had spread so much into my lower leg that there wasn't even an option of trying to do surgery to remove it so it was, you know, again, it was bad enough to have it, but to have it in the middle of a global pandemic when nobody could be there to support me, nobody could be there. You know, I was, I was literally, I, I was the only person in the pre-op area. I was the only surgery in the hospital that day. They had to get special permission to do the surgery 
because of the pandemic and the fact that they had canceled all surgeries unless they were absolutely necessary. And they were like, this is absolutely necessary. I, I mean, I had been walking around on a broken leg for three weeks. I was in tremendous pain and I, I had a, uh, a therapist who finally got my doctor. She, she was like, you know, you need to scan him. There's something wrong here. And he kept thinking it was something else. And it wasn't until she finally, you know, kind of put her foot down and said, no, this is, there's something else going on here that she realized it was, uh, it, the cancer was back and it had spread and that. So how did it feel to have my leg amputated? I, I guess the only way I can describe this is I am so much more than a body part. And, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but you know, I, I mean, just like I was so much more than a policeman. Yes, I love being a policeman. Yes, it was, it was a passion of mine, but it wasn't who I was. And, and I knew policemen who'd been policemen for 35 years and probably should have retired, but their whole identity was tied up in the fact that they had a gun and a badge and they had this, this authority. That was never me. You know, I mean, I, I knew I could do other things if, if I had to, if I wanted to. So when I had my leg amputated, yeah, it was bad, but it was like, it was just another, it, it was just another. Yeah, it was a pretty big challenge in my life, but I was so much more than my foot when it was amputated. I was so much more than my leg when it was amputated. Yes, there are, you know, now you got, now I'm in a wheelchair. I, I have a prosthetic leg that I need to, to go to physical therapy to learn how to walk with, but this clinical trial is, is so, devastating to my body that I, I'm just not physically able and I only get so many visits with a physical therapist through my health insurance that I don't want to use that when I when I'm not able to going to be going to be able to to learn how to walk so so I've purposely not gone down that road yet I want to and and I'm you know unless I die I, I certainly plan on on it but again I am I'm more than my leg I, I'm I'm more than you know you can you could probably paralyze me and as long as I could still think I'd figure out a way to do something, to write a book, to do more podcasts, whatever it is. So I, I, I guess that's probably the best way to describe it. Realize that, you know, you are so much more than your brain, your lungs, your heart, your hands, your whatever. You, there's so much more. And, and this is all this is all just window dressing. This is not who we are. Who we are is is in our soul. It's in our heart. And you mentioned that your wife has always been there to support you and she's been with you through all of everything that you've been through, which is amazing. She's been a great support system for you. Did you ever f feel like you were burdening her when you were going through, you know, one step at a time when you were getting diagnosed, you know, with different things? And did you ever feel like that? Every day. I, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I've told her, just put me in a nursing home and get on with your life. And I mean, in a way, that's kind of selfish of me to say that. And I know that if the situation was reversed, I would never do that to her. I, I mean, I would do everything I can to care for her and make sure she was, you know, in the best place that she could be. But I do. I, I do feel like I'm a burden to my family from time to time. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm not dead yet. I can still contribute to the family. And I mean, there were there were days and, and, and I've talked on other podcasts about 
winning the day when I was on interferon. And sometimes winning the day when I was on interferon meant literally winning this minute, this small little minute right here. I, I, I am so sick and I feel so depleted. You know what? I, I, I'm just, I just gotta, I gotta get through this minute. And sometimes it was all I could do, and this was before I lost, lost my leg, you know, to maybe throw a load of laundry in. Can I help in some way? Can I throw a load of laundry in the wash machine? Can I take the garbage out? Can I, can I do one thing? I, I am so sick and I, I feel so horrible, but can I do one thing? So maybe I can win that moment or maybe I can win that hour. And maybe that for me was, was winning the day. That's all I could do that day. So, you know, yes, I, f I felt like a burden and I do try to help. I, I, I do almost nothing now. I mean, I, I can't drive. I, I can't, um, you know, I, my wife makes the meals. My wife does, my wife does everything. And, and I, that bothers me. And I, I wish I could contribute more, but, but this, is, this is my life. I do the best I can with what I have. And thank God for her and our daughter to, you know, to kind of help me through this. I think what you're doing, you know, your mindset itself is very inspirational because a lot of people, they now, I mean, it's not just a lot of people, but I think as humans, we try to find excuses for not doing the things that we want to do. And that's, you know, that's just not. You know, that's that just comes naturally to us because I think it's a element of fear that lies with doing something that we want to do or we find reasons. And I think hesitations and, you know, doubts are something that you knows normal. It's human nature. But people who are completely healthy and do have the resources, but they tend to find some things that, you know, can you know, that can just keep pushing the day forward. But what you're doing, even with, you know, your even though you're not physically able to do a lot of things, you're still thinking about what you can do to, you know, spread your message, to come on podcasts, to write a book and things like that. How, what made you achieve that mindset? You know, when we're all out here, you know, trying to make up some excuses so that we can run away from our responsibilities and do the things that we actually want to do. So really kind of my passion, knowing that I am probably coming to the end of my life, uh, my passion has really been to help other people find their purpose or their why in life. There's, a, there's an author here in, in the U.S. by the name of Mark Twain. He's passed away now. But he had, he had a great quote. He said, the two most important days of our lives are the day that we're born and the day that we figure out why. There's a reason that, you know, that we were born. And that reason involves finding and living your purpose. I believe that we're all destined to live uncommon and extraordinary lives. And that has nothing to do with the kind of job you have, how much money you make, what kind of car you drive, etc. We are not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of, of becoming. The problem is, is that most people, and you kind of hit it on the head with, you know, they're afraid or whatever. Most people take an unintentional approach to life, kind of a hands-off approach to life. And by living a casual life, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. I've had, as I said, it's been nine years since I've had cancer. And, and I've had plenty of time to think about my own death. 
And after I die, I can't imagine standing in the presence of our creator, whoever or whatever you believe that entity to be, and being unable to account for the gifts and the talents that I was born with and that I didn't use to make the world a better place. It's been said that the wealthiest places on earth are our cemeteries because they're areas rich in businesses never started, books never written, relationships never pursued, and dreams never realized. The only way that you can find your purpose is to search it out, to try things that make you uncomfortable, to fight against the status quo, to experience things that basically scare you. But finding your why or your purpose is essential because it's the reason that you were born. And the only way to discover that reason is to be open to it and search for it with your hearts. I think you said it perfectly. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's not just your cancer that made you do the things that you want to do. But I feel like, you know, you were doing it way before you were diagnosed. And I think that's, I want to know, you know, you said you are okay with death and, you know, you accept it. What made you come to that mindset? You know, because we're all, everybody wants to live. I, I think not everyone, but I think most of the people, they want to live the most that they can for the longest that they can, especially, you know, people who have resources, they want to prolong it as much as possible but you're saying you're okay with it is it because you're suffering or is it because you feel like you had a fulfilled life the latter i i mean yes i've had a lot of suffering but i'll tell you suffering is one of life's greatest teachers so yes i suffered a lot but i also learned a lot by that suffering i feel that i am i'm you know comfortable if you want to use that word with death because I was put on this earth, just, just what I said a minute ago, I was put on this earth for a reason, to find and live my purpose. I found that purpose and I lived it. So for me, I did what I was supposed to do. I came here to do, to do something. And, and like I said, we're not all born with the same gifts and talents. You're better at something than I am. I'm better at something than you are. You're better at something that your mom or your dad are doing. We're, we're all different. And that's what and that's what's great. I mean, can you imagine how boring this world would be if we were all the same or even if we lived forever? How boring would this world be? Because nobody, nobody would do anything. You know, I'll get to it tomorrow. You know what? You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. You know, you have to operate or I try to operate with this is a day one, week one mentality. You know, we're starting from the only easy day. That was yesterday. Today is a whole nother day. It's day one, week one. So now it's time to figure it out and, and, and figure out where we're going and how we're going to do it. So for me, it's I did that. I figured out what I was supposed to do and I live my life. So if I died tomorrow, don't get me wrong. As I said, I don't want to die, but if I don't want to leave the people that I love. But for me, it doesn't scare me. It almost excites me to see what's on the other side of death. And that's that's awesome because you know the thing is like you mentioned everyone always find you know they they always keep pushing things and everybody's so focused on living the longest life but i feel like it's more important to live 
the best life that we can, a life where we're happy that you know it's fulfilled and something that we know for a fact that people can remember us by something that either we did or you know we contributed or we made a difference in some way. And I think that is the most important thing. And a lot of people have midlife crisis. They have you know what did I do? What is my purpose? What am I doing with my life? You know what is the point of just working every day? You know where what's going to happen next and there there's there's still an element of uncertainty you know people don't want to leave the jobs that they already have which pays a secure amount of money even though they don't like it and you know it's like you mentioned you know I'll do it tomorrow I'll do it in two weeks time but we never know what's going to happen and even this pandemic that happened none of us predicted it a lot of the people who had secure jobs they lost it they came in financial you know crisis and difficulty and you know and a lot of people would use that people out here people would use that as an excuse saying that this is why we need financial security and we can't always do what we want to do you agree with that yeah, i i do and and let me throw this quote out at you and i devoted an entire chapter in my book to this because I've done it, and, and you probably have too. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. And I want to do that. Kind of scares me. No, I'm not going to do it. And, and if you do do it, if you find the courage, you know, if you find the, the, the intestinal fortitude to get out there and try something, even if you fail, you know, I always look at that, you know, if I try something, two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to win, I'm going to be successful at it, or I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to learn something about myself. I'm going to learn something about, you know, the way I was doing what, what we did. I mean, I look at, at Thomas Edison, who, you know, developed the light bulb. He said, you know, I, I didn't fail. I just found, found 9,000 ways not to do this, you know, and, and then on that 9,001, he figured it out. So he didn't stop. It's like, oh, you know, I tried. I didn't do it. He just kept going. Just keep going. Learn something. I, you know, I tried this business. It failed. What did you learn? Well, I learned I failed because of XYZ. Well, change XYZ. Try it again. Maybe this time you'll succeed. But people are, I'm afraid I don't want to do it. You know, I, I, I'm insecure. I don't know if I've got the ability Everything you need to be successful in life is already inside you. You just got to pull it out. You learn when you try things out, like you mentioned, you know, it's like a trial and error thing. How do you know that something is going to fail or succeed if you don't even give it a chance to do that? And I've learned that a lot of things in life, you know, people will not only... You know, they, they say a lot of things, but not only push their own insecurities onto you, but they will try to do everything that they can to put you down and to say all the things that will make you think twice about doing the things that you want to do. And, you know, I think that's why surrounding yourself with people who are positive and people who want to have your best interests is also very important. And you had a very strong support system with your friends and family. And I think that's incredible and i think that's one of the main things that we need in life to keep us going if we have a good amount of people with us and i want to go back to that going the younger generation like you mentioned 
is always questioning things and you know stopping themselves from doing things. What is the advice that you have that you can give them? Some wise words from you. I think it kind of goes back to if there's something in your heart, if if there's something that you feel passionate about doing, and it scares you, mm-hmm. do it, do it. Because, like I said, at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not the things that you did. They're going to be the things that you didn't do. Gee, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have asked that man or that woman out. I wish I would have taken that job. I wish I would have gone hang gliding or parachuting or whitewater rafting or scuba diving or whatever it is. Whatever it is, whatever this passion, whatever... Whatever gets you up in the morning, and, 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 and that's another thing. If you, you know, to find and live your purpose, if you get up in the morning and you're not excited to go to work or, or, or whatever you're going to do, then you haven't found that passion yet. When I was a policeman, I couldn't wait to get up and go to work. What, what are we going to do today? We, you know, how are we going to help somebody? You know, who are we going to arrest? Who are we going to, what bad people are we going to take out of society so that the rest of us can, can be safe? I was excited about that. If you're not excited about it, then that's not your passion. Keep looking, keep going. And and so I always do, I guess that's the only advice I could give you. Whatever your passion is, whatever you, whatever your life experience, whatever's coming from your heart, from coming inside you that you want to pursue that scares you, do it. That's wonderful advice and People are, you know, usually we are all as humans, we're programmed to question a lot of things and, you know, to basically have a lot of doubts. And I think what you said will be a push for a lot of people to take the step into doing the things that they actually want to do. And I think that's what life is about. And I think if anyone can learn anything from you, that's mainly is making the best out of life. And you've done that by doing the things that you want to do when you wanted to do them. And I think that's very impressive. And that's that's incredible because you you listen to yourself. And I think that's the step that a lot of people need to take is listen to them themselves listen to their minds and what they need to do like you said tap into their passions and you know tapping i think passions is something that is a word that's been like you know thrown around a lot and people are so confused like what is my passion i don't know what my passion is i still haven't figured it out but i think you know something that you love that's something that makes you happy i think to say that in a better terms is i think something that we all can learn from and you've been doing that amazing thing and your perseverance is something that everyone can you know learn from to stop making excuses and to do something with their lives and you know, i had a great time talking to you today and i am 100% sure that everybody listening to you would go and think about what they're doing with their lives and i think that's the main message to find your purpose absolutely before we end this podcast, do you have any any last messages to add? Yeah, just l- let me throw this out. And, you know, I, I, I told you about my, my three truths. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about adding a fourth one. And, and really, that kind of has to do with if, if you think about the end, if, if, you, if you think about the end game, if you think about the end of your life, where, where that ends up. What will people say about you at your funeral? You know, what will be the one thing that people say about you if, at, at your funeral? And, and I always ask people to, 
live your life based on the decisions that you made, not on the decisions that you didn't or that other people made for you. And if you do that, then you know, you're totally responsible for how things come out. I mean, it's all on you, how, that, how, how your life ends up, if you do it that way. But there are a lot of people, and I know people that, that see my doctor that let my doctor make all the decisions, all their medical decisions whatsoever. I'm not like that. I'm constantly asking my doctor questions. Well, why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Why are you giving me this? You know, I'm sure my doctor's ready to hit me over the head, you know, with a two by four or something like that. It's like, just be quiet. You don't have a medical degree. You're right, I don't. But I, I know my body. And so I, I, I listen to it in that way. So let me end with this. For the next 30 days, whoever is listening to this podcast that you and I are doing today, for the next 30 days, treat everybody that you come in contact with as if they'll be dead tomorrow. Treat the, you know, the person who cuts you off in traffic or the, the person at school or your work who, te who takes credit for the work that you did or your, your child, if you have children, who's constantly defying you as if they'll be dead tomorrow. If you do that for the next 30 days, it'll be amazing how different your perspective of other people will be and how much less stress you will have in your life. And I'll end it with that. That's incredible. And I think that's something that we can all try, you know, that's a good mindset to have. We never know what's going to happen tomorrow and everything is not promised. And, you know, if you want to learn anything from 2020 and now what we're going through is that nothing is promised and anything can change any minute. And I think you said that very well. And I think your experiences and what you went through and your story has been you know, very inspiring and you know, a lot of times people need a little push and I think this episode would what people need right now to think about things and you know, I had an incredible time talking to you and thank you so much for coming on to my show, Terry. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been great for me and hopefully between the two of us, we made a difference and helped somebody out today. I think we definitely did. Anyone who's listening, just make a move today and try to do at least a small step into something that makes you happy. At the end of the day, life is, you know, you can live a long life, but there's no point to it if you aren't happy and if, you, if it isn't purposeful. And for everybody listening, I'll see you all next week. <laughs>